I'd like to speak this morning on a theme that I'm calling the God of peace and the beauty of order. The God of peace and the beauty of order. Before we pray, I just want to say this uh, portion of 1 Corinthians 14 might seem to the first, at the first reading not really to be an application with reference to the life of the Spirit in the church. Even though Paul addresses prophecy and tongues, it doesn't seem as much as the other portions of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 to be a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. But it very much has to do with that theme and the way in which God is jealous through the Apostle for the church to experience the Holy Spirit and the edification and building up of the life of the body in a certain manner. And the manner of that experience has much weight for Paul the Apostle because if it's distorted, then the experience of God, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God that is to be put on display through the church becomes a caricature or something that is not in keeping with the honor of his name. And so there is this great theme of God being a God of peace as opposed to a God of confusion. And there's this great theme of order. And so we want to ask the Lord for help to understand what Paul was really getting at here because this has been a passage on several levels that has been a point of confusion for many theologians, many churches, many movements, and a point of contention as well. So let's look to the God of peace and ask that he might open up this text for us and build up the church and bring correctives that we may need as saints from different backgrounds and ask him that he might open our hearts to establish us in the faith. So Father, you have declared yourself through the apostle to be the God of peace and your son, the Prince of Peace. We ask, Lord, that that very peace would rest upon us this morning as we look at this text and as we think upon the theme of order, which almost sounds like a drab theme, not the kind that we might jump up and dance about, not the kind that we would think to, to cause a conference to be brought to birth through, a conference on order. What kind of a humdrum theme is this? And yet it has to do with your kingdom in the earth. And so we pray that you would help us to see into your word and into the heart of the apostle. Lord, we need your spirit for this. And so we ask it knowing that you are a faithful father who loves to give bread to his children when they ask for it and not stones. We bless you. We thank you for this text. We ask that you would establish us in the faith through it and help us as a church to be a people of the spirit that bring honor to your name in our city. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want to read the text first, uh, verses 26 through 40, and then we'll be using this theme of order and the God of peace as a springboard into a few other passages to address some of the issues that Paul was jealous to address at the church in Corinth. We've already heard several messages from these few chapters here. Last week, Josh addressed clearly, I think, and faithfully the issue of prophecy and tongues, the ways in which prophecy should be functioning within the church, the ways in which prophecy might be abused in the church, and the same thing for tongues. Paul is still in that vein to a degree. He's been holding forth this theme that the chief thing that he's jealous for in the church, through its worship, its teaching, its prophecies, its, its gifts of the Spirit functioning, is that the church would be edified, right? We've been hearing about this, that the church would be built up into Christ. So it, it doesn't have to do with gifts functioning so that the saints can be entertained, so that we might be counted ourselves as more spiritual than one another. The chief issue Paul has been pounding through this letter is that the church would actually come into a mature knowledge of Christ and be built up in him and become by God's grace the very expression of that man, Christ Jesus, to one another and in the earth. That's edification, being built up into the man, Christ Jesus. 
Paul keeps that theme running in this next portion of 1 Corinthians 14, but he brings in another dimension and begins to touch on this issue of order. So my Bible, and some of yours will be this way in the margin, has this section titled Orderly Worship, which I don't think is a bad title. But let's read the text and then go into a few aspects pertaining to it. Verse 26 of chapter 14. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. One of the first things we can make note of here in this text is Paul is saying to these saints at Corinth that when they come together, each one has one of these gifts as it appears because he's been addressing this issue of prophets prophesying over one another, people speaking in tongues and there being, there being no interpretation, uh, everyone wanting to give teachings and there's a lack of edification in the body because there's disorder essentially. But here he's saying, when you come together. Notice one thing about Paul's ecclesiology. We said this word a few weeks back. This is the study of the church. Things pertaining to the church, right? And it just so happens that the two passages that I've been preaching in this series are more ecclesiological than pneumatological. That means they're more into the study of the church than they are the study of the spirit. Pneuma is the word for wind or spirit. And Josh's passages had more to do with the work of the Spirit and the gifts. Mine have a little more to do with the church. And so we want to be faithful to the text and, and see what the Lord would draw out for our edification. But he says here, when you come together, not if you come together. It's assumed for Paul that the saints will be coming together and gathering. It's assumed for Paul that something is out of order in the life of the church and of its people if the saints counted a light thing to come together. When you come together, not if. And when you come together, he says, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. That is to say for Paul. Now the scholars take this verse in different ways. Some say that Paul is saying that they're exaggerating in their claim to have so many of the gifts of the Spirit functioning. And so he's asking in kind of a shocked way, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has something? Every one of you has something? Are you kidding me? Others would say that the text is saying, as a pronouncement of that particular church, it seems that you all are uniquely gifted with the gifts of the Spirit. So since you have all of these things functioning and each one seems to have something, let it be done in order. And others, are, others might say that this is more of a prescription for the church at large. To say, when you come together, you should expect that each one of you may have something from the Holy Spirit to give. Well, I think the first idea is out of the bag. The, the second two, it might have something to do with more of something like that. I don't think Paul is here being skeptical of their claims to the gifts of the Spirit because he never questions the reality and validity of the gifts that are functioning in the church at Corinth. He simply says they're functioning in a way that is not honoring God and is out of order. So he says here then, let all things be done for building up. Uh, there are different gifts here described, which I'll describe in brief. There are hymns. Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation. A hymn could be a reference to the, the old Psalms in the Hebrew Bible. It could be songs that are being written in the church, in the life of the church, songs of praise. The word means songs with instruments or with strings. So the idea that the church shouldn't be singing or shouldn't have instruments, as some have supposed, is already shown to be erroneous. He says when you gather, others have a lesson that is a teaching and instruction. Others have a revelation, something the Lord has shown them throughout the week or that morning during the worship time. A tongue which could be the speaking forth by the Spirit, through which men hear their own language, the praises of God in their own language as in Acts 2, or it could be the 1 Corinthians 14, 2 kind of tongue, which is a communion with God, which is primarily reserved for the secret place of prayer unless one has an interpretation. For those of you that heard this last week from Josh. Or an interpretation. So Paul says these gifts are at work in your midst. 
Then he goes on to address in verse, verses 27 to 28 order with regard to tongues in the assembly. So he says, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. And each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Isn't this something how Paul is speaking of this remarkable supernatural gift that is given by the Spirit, but he has such practical instruction for how it ought to be functioning in the church. This is something that apostles are uniquely gifted in that I think prophets might not be quite as gifted in. The ability to think about and steward profound mysteries of God and gifts of God, but to seek to father the church so that these gifts might be implemented or the mysteries of God might be understood in such a way that applies to real life. Does that make sense? And so Paul is doing this here in this text because there seem to be many of you that have prophetic utterances, but no one's being edified. How about we do it this way? Let there not be more than three brothers at a time that are prophesying and not on top of each other, but listening to one another, waiting upon the Lord together. And if one is being stirred in a certain way with something, the other one can quiet down for a moment. Because as he'll say later, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. Which means there is no idea in Paul's mind that the Holy Spirit would be at work in the church in such a way that it would be chaotic. That's not to say that things won't happen that would appear strange to the world. Because the cross itself is strange foolishness to the world but it is to say if the gifts of of the spirit are functioning in a healthy way that they should happen in such a way that the saints are still in control of their faculties and are able to quiet down for a moment if something needs to be said elsewise so this this kind of passage I grew up myself in the charismatic and Pentecostal church and I never heard this passage preached never once I've been in meetings where there was prophecy, prophecy galore from men on platforms in large gatherings, giving prophecies, calling people out in the crowd. Sometimes those words seeming remarkable and other times very vague and syrupy and cheap. Other times there was chaos. There was prophecy all over the place. Everybody has a word from the Lord. Men claiming that they dwell in the third heaven more than they walk upon the earth. All kinds of things that seem quite removed from what we read about in the epistles. But here is Paul bringing something that I think much of the charismatic church unfortunately does not want to hear, and it's the word restrictions. Submission. We want to be free in the spirit, and yet we don't know what free in the spirit means from a biblical vantage point. Because free in the spirit to Paul meant that the church was living and moving and having its being in Christ by the power of the spirit, was not drunk on this world, but was filled with the spirit and had the liberty and maturity to see that the gifts of the spirit were functioning in such a way that the church would actually be built up. That was freedom to Paul. That's what he's addressing here. In the chaos of your gatherings, O Corinthians, You're not seeing Christ anymore, and therefore you're no longer free. So he puts restrictions on these prophetic ones within the church. Don't barrel over one another. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. Let your hearts be stilled before God. Let him remain the center. Let it not be discombobulated in such a way that your prophecies become the center of the meeting or you become the center of the meeting. Let it be Christ in all. And so he addresses prophecy in that way, tongues in that way. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, each in turn and let someone interpret. I also must say in reiterating what Josh preached last week that being raised in the Pentecostal charismatic church, I never heard it taught until I studied it for myself that when tongues are being given in a corporate gathering, 
then they should not be given unless there's an interpretation or one who is gifted in that way to interpret. How, how is it that movements and denominations can exist for decades and pay little or no heed to what the apostle here is saying? The one who said that he prayed in tongues more than all the other saints. There are other denominations that say the gifts of the Spirit have ceased, that they ceased with the death of the last apostle, which is a strange idea to me, as if somehow they were having a gathering, maybe in Ephesus, maybe in the late 90s, and people are receiving prophetic utterances, people are speaking in tongues, there's a crippled man there who's beginning to be healed, his leg is straightening out, then all of a sudden he falls on the floor. And the people prophesying all of a sudden start choking. And the man speaking quietly in tongues all of a sudden says, I can only speak Greek now. And they say, what's going on? Why, why have these gifts ceased? And then a man runs in beleaguered and out of breath and says, well, the apostle John was the last one. He just died. So the gifts have ceased. It's a strange idea. It's an idea that can't be found anywhere in Scripture that the gifts of the Spirit were to cease, either with the death of the apostles or others would say with the closing of the canon of Scripture. It's not in the Bible. It's not even implied. You can't even find verses that, that seem to lead in that direction. It's a strange doctrine, I believe, inspired by the enemy to rob the church of edification. Because who are we to think we can get by in the life of the church and in obedience and discipleship without the profound near, frequent work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Who are we to think we can get by without the gifts that our generous God has given us in His Son? And how could we be okay with not experiencing them in the church if we believe Him to be our Lord and this to be the true Word of God? It's a question that needs to be asked. So he goes on to talk about order in prophecy in verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak. He says the same thing. He says about those speaking with tongues. And here's, here's that other phrase that I think many who consider themselves prophets don't want to hear. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Let their prophecies be tested. Here again, the apostle is bringing another restriction that leads to true freedom. Only a father knows what it means to bring restrictions upon his sons that lead to their betterment and their good. Any religious man can impose restrictions on the church that might lead to death. Or any unwise man can remove all restrictions and, and propose some kind of freedom that actually leads to deception and death down the road. But the wisdom of an apostle like Paul brings restrictions to the church that will lead to her building up. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. These prophecies need to be weighed and tested. This calls into question almost the entirety of the idea of prophets as it has been held forth in the 90s and into the 2000s in America and Europe in particular, that there should be men that speak from a platform who are the men of power for the hour, that everybody wants to come and hear, and everyone is begging the Lord, hopefully this man will call me out from the crowd and tell me my social security number and what I had for dinner last night so that I can know that you love me. That idea of one man of God or two or a little cluster of men who are not to be questioned in their prophecies or in their character is one of the most unbiblical things that has developed in the church in the last 30 years and has wrought great destruction even to many of the men who have been known from those platforms who have fallen into long-standing homosexual relationships and drunkenness and there has not been a context of church sufficient for them to experience Christ in the brothers and sisters. Did these men fall into sin? Many of them, yes, they did. But so must the charge be laid at the foot of the church for having elevated them and pressured them into something that is not healthy or normative for the life of the church. The church, in a charismatic brand, almost worshiped them rather than serving them, speaking the truth to them in love 
asking them the right questions about their lives and how they were really getting about in life or marriage or in their morality, questioning about their doctrine, what they actually believe the scriptures say. There wasn't a sufficient love for those men to raise those kinds of questions, but Paul had that kind of love, and so he could put restrictions on the church, lest things get unruly and out of order. So Paul now is bringing restrictions to those who are speaking in tongues in a healthy manner, and he's telling them still, do not forsake tongues. I, I speak in tongues more than all of you, and yet here are some restrictions based on wisdom. I want all of you to prophesy. Earnestly pursue this gift. And here are some restrictions that ought to go with it, lest you abuse it and abuse one another, and thereby abuse the name of the Lord and the way that you're functioning as the church. And now Paul turns, uh, finishing out that thought, let the others weigh what is said. I believe this is a reference, the others that are here is a reference to the rest of the saints who are there in the church. Some have said these might be the other prophets weighing what has said. That's possible. But for certain, the Lord would have the church to be responsible for what is being preached, taught, prophesied. It's not just the role of the elders, even though the elders will stand before God in the way that we shepherd the church. It's also the responsibility of the church as a whole. Paul said to the saints, if anyone preaches a gospel that I did not preach, even an angel should appear to you and preach a different gospel, let him be accursed. He said that to the church, not just to the elders. In the same way, if prophetic utterances are being given, they need to be tested. And what is the ground of their testing? It's twofold. Firstly, it's the scriptures themselves. If prophecy is being given in a way that describes or reveals God differently than he has revealed himself in the scriptures, those prophecies are to be tested and discarded. If prophecies give instructions or directions to the church that are different or contrary to the, the instructions given by the, the apostles, by Jesus himself, by the prophets of the Old Testament, then those instructions are to be counted false. It doesn't mean that that brother is necessarily false, but he as a prophetic brother needs to be willing for that correction. And if he's not willing for that correction, then he shouldn't be prophesying. You see the difference between that and what, what many of you will know as prophetic movements. There's a kind of accountability, a kind of humility, a kind of submittedness to the body that has the flavor of walking in the light. It has the flavor of being subservient to a heavenly king. And Paul puts these restrictions here to safeguard both the prophets and the church as well from those kinds of excesses. I wonder how many of you have actually meditated on these scriptures. It's rare, I think, for those, especially from charismatic backgrounds, to think on these things. Paul goes on to say, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So there's the second, be silent. He says, if there's no one to interpret, let the one speaking in tongues be silent. Well, wait a minute, Paul, I thought you said not to forsake tongues. I'm not forsaking tongues. I'm forsaking disorder. I'm forsaking the church not being built up. So, if there's no one to interpret, let those speaking in tongues be silent. Now he gives another one. If a revelation is made to another while they are sitting there, let the prophet who is prophesying listen to the other. That means defer to one another. That means keep the honor of the body alive in your midst. Don't start thinking this whole show is about me and the way that you're ministering or functioning. Listen to the Lord and listen to him together. This really strikes at the root of much of of the energy that I have seen in charismatic and prophetic contexts as well. Because there's this almost, pardon my language, orgasmic thing in the context of the charismatic church where if we can reach a new height in this meeting, raise the decibels in the speakers, louder music, louder shouting, a newer revelation than the guy before me had, one that gets a greater, evokes a greater response out of the people than we've reached a new peak. And Paul says, no, 
We don't reach peaks in prophecy. We reach peaks in the gospel. And prophecy is a gift that undergirds and fills in and helps to enhance our view and understanding of Christ and of the gospel and of one another. So, Paul's putting restrictions again. Let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy. There's even a book called You Can All Prophesy. And I haven't read the book, so I won't criticize the book itself. But the title is, is a little bit yanked out of context here. Because the point that Paul is making is that you can all prophesy one by one. So that all men may learn and all may be encouraged. That's the point that Paul's making is you can all prophesy in an orderly way. Stop trampling one another. You can all prophesy in such a way that you're actually hearing the Lord together. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Four, here's a big four, and I think this is one of the chief issues Paul is getting at in this text. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This is why I'm calling this message the God of peace and the beauty of order. Now we come upon probably what is the most controversial portion of the text. And some of you may be offended and hurt that I would even read this text in 2016. I don't know all of you. Some of you may be troubled by the way in which I interpret this text or we come to understand this text. But I want to say at the outset before I dive into this, firstly that the the three elders of this church are in harmony with our view of what is called complementarianism as opposed to egalitarianism. And before those of you who might be egalitarian raise the knife at me, I'd like you to give me a hearing, or better yet, give the text of Scripture a hearing this morning afresh. Because there's a lot of misunderstanding around this theme. And this text is one that Many have considered to be oppressive. Liberal scholars, lesbian Christian scholars have come out and written commentaries saying that Paul the Apostle was a chauvinist. And this proves that idea. So what is Paul getting at here? Let's read the text. And he follows this right after his statement that God is not a God of confusion but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints. We need to stop right there. Paul starts this section on women being silent in the church. Here comes Paul with another restriction, right? Restricts those speaking in tongues, men and women. He restricts those prophesying, men and women. And now he's giving a specific restriction on women within the assembly of the saints. Well, let's seek to hear him out. But he says here something that pulls the rug out from under the feet of a lot of arguments because it's been taught that Paul's statements about women not being elders, not speaking in the church, not teaching and having authority over men, or the whole head covering passage in 1 Corinthians 11, that all of those things were cultural and only cultural. Paul was saying those things because of what was going on during the time. Well, here he opens up and says, as in all the churches of the saints... That's the first reason that for me it's difficult, I want to say impossible for me to say, that Paul's view of how women ought to function in the church is only related to culture. Because for him this was something that should be taking place in all of the churches. We need to, we need to bounce around in his other epistles to get more light on what he might mean here. Because this is a very short passage. As in all the churches of the saints, the, the women should keep silent in the churches. Okay, Paul. Wait a minute now. That does sound chauvinistic, doesn't it? That does sound like he's putting a muzzle on all of the women and devaluing them and would have no place for them being of value in the body of Christ. And if I, as a liberal scholar, were to exegete that verse only and use it as the basis for my whole thesis, I might try to build a case that Paul was a chauvinist and that he didn't value women in the churches. But if I read the whole of the scripture, something else comes to light. 
For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. There's that word submission. And some of you cringe when you hear it. Men and women. We, we need to know, and ask, we need to ask the question whether the word submission for us is one that is so distasteful because we have some superior view to Paul's or because in some measure we are still seeking to build a kingdom of our own. And I would say for most people, it probably is the latter because the first is true of no one that they have a better view on this than Paul. <clears throat> so, if there is anything they desire to learn, verse 35, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, taken at face value, that whole passage could be profoundly troubling. But I want to ask you if you think you can take what Paul has said there and apply it only to first century Corinth? Well, we know the answer is no there because he says, as in all the churches. So the question broadens a little bit. Maybe it's just an application to first century churches in the Gentile world. But then we go back a few chapters in 1 Corinthians 11 to get a little more light on Paul's view of women in the church. And some of us might come to a crisis in this. And the crisis is, do we believe the Bible is sufficient revelation of God for his purposes and the revelation of himself and of his ways? Or do we think somehow that The View, I mean the television show, The View, or Oprah Winfrey or Dr. Phil have something to add to Scripture or even to replace the Scriptures? This is what will define us in troubling times as being faithful followers of Jesus or being those who harden their hearts toward the faith. So in chapter 11, just a few chapters back, a few things come to light. One thing that comes to light, I don't have time to exposit all of these passages, so we'll just look at them as briefly as we can. One thing that comes to light is that Paul says in chapter 11 that women may prophesy in the gatherings if they are properly covered by their husband or by implication by the elders or men within the church, sisters within the church, even for the sake of fellowship and accountability. Is this a brother or sister prophesying that we can give a stamp of approval, so to speak, that the grace of God is at work in their lives? We know their character. They're not perfect, but they are growing in grace and when they say the Lord is impressing something on their heart, we believe it's worthy of the church listening to. Paul brings up this whole issue of head coverings, which I don't have time to go into right now. But suffice it to say, it becomes clear because Paul brings up something that transcends culture with reference to women in the church and them not prophesying unless they be rightly covered. By their husbands, he, he says that because he's speaking of married women here. But he goes on to say in verse 7, A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman. For, the reason I say this is because of something Paul is saying here. Here's why I'm saying these things about the way in which a woman ought to function in the church. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Evidently, this head covering was a symbol of authority within that culture, but there's something deeper that Paul was striking at the root of here, and it was this. Are you as a sister in the body of Christ living in such a way that you're not respecting your husband in day-to-day -day life and you're more concerned about the perception of your spirituality that people have than you are concerned that God should be glorified and the church built up. If you as a woman are functioning in that kind of way and saying, I don't want to wear a head covering, I don't need the covering of my husband or the statement from the elders that 
they believe I ought to share something with the church based on what they know of my life and my character, then there's something of a residual rebellion and pride that is still alive in you that needs to be crucified. The same should be said to men who are living in ambition and pride and building mega ministries that their names might be exalted rather than living in the day-to-day life of the church and accountable to the church. And if their leaders amongst the company of elders who love one another enough to speak the truth and love to one another. Someone asked me the other day, one of the sisters in our missional community, what can, you know, kind of, what is this head covering thing? And I said, well, a modern example of what Paul was addressing there might be something like this. If a woman said, I'm not going to wear my wedding ring anymore, which is a symbol of my being wed to my husband. And in the church gatherings, even though he wants to sit by me, I'm not going to sit by him because I've got a gift and I've got a ministry and I'm going to establish this ministry even though I've not talked to the elders about it, I've not talked to other sisters and asked them, older sisters in the faith, ask them if they think I'm gifted in this way or if it's healthy for me to be functioning. I actually don't care about what they say because I've got something from the Lord. And Paul is saying, as I'm saying here, if that's your disposition, and it's okay in your mind that you should disrespect and cut down your husband, and you don't have any regard for what what the church might think of how you ought to function and how you are uniquely gifted, you're just going to run your own thing, then that is what Paul was addressing as an unhealthy expression in the body. That is why Paul addresses that the women ought to be silent in this way. Look at what he says. Why a wife ought not to have a symbol on her head. Why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That doesn't sound very cultural to me. It takes me back to a story when I was riding with two young missionaries that had just been married and were on their way to an unreached people group to preach and plant churches And it turns out the the wife had a a new desire to get her hair cut really short, like she had it in high school, evidently, kind of shortly shaved almost on the sides. And her husband just did not want her to get her hair cut like this. So I was sitting in the back riding with them, and she took opportunity to pin me with this question. I really want to get my hair cut in a certain way, and She half-jokingly said, you know, and the scripture says a husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church. He doesn't want me to cut my hair short like this. Don't you think he should love me and let me get my hair cut like this? It was partly humorous, but it was partly a serious question. And I could feel just the little pins and needles of pressure about this kind of question. She said, what do you think about that, Brian? And I said, well, sister... The question is not so much what do I think about it, but what do the angels think about it? She said, what? What are you talking about? I said, read 1 Corinthians 11. What do you think that the angels who are in the presence of God, continuously crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. What do you think they think about looking down on your marriage, which is to be an expression of the relationship between Christ and the church? And the wife's submission to the husband to be an expression of the church's submission to its head. What do you think the angels think about you taking your personal preference and pitting it against your husband's preference for you when it's something that has to do with you? And I don't remember if there was an answer, but that was a question that I think was prompted by the Lord because Something needs to be seen in the church, in its marriages, in its single men and women, in the way that we function as the church that carries with it the weight and reverence and joy and reality of the God who is a God of peace. That was not an issue of peace. That was a view that was at enmity, at war, with God being the king of that marriage, and it was causing a little kind of sarcastic war between a husband and a wife rather than it being a deferring of preference and a serving of one another. So, there's another story of one of my mentors who was in Singapore 
And after his preaching, they had a question and answer time. And one of the Singaporean sisters got up and got the microphone and says, Mr. Such and Such, I need you to answer this question because the men in our church are not spiritual. We, we women are the ones carrying the weight in prayer. And we have ministries that we're developing, missions ministries, and we're doing this and we're doing that. And our husbands, they're, they're lax. They're not leading the church in, in spirituality. They're not praying like we are. What do you encourage us to do? And, and this brother and elder statesman in the body of Christ, he told his sister, it may be that you need to relinquish all of your ambitions after ministry. And the fact that you would ask a question like that in front of the body, fingering that it's your husband and demeaning him as, as the man in your house is a statement that there's probably something in you that's not in keeping with what Peter describes of a woman having a submissive and quiet spirit which shows forth the majesty of God. And he said, maybe you need to lay down all of your ambitions for ministry and stop leaving Bible notes on the toilet for him and slipping new books on how to be a more spiritual man under his pillow. And you need to give yourself to quiet intercessions and tears and wash his feet and serve as a woman, your husband, in the way that Christ laid down his life for you. That's exactly the same counsel that Peter gave to the wife that has a wayward husband. This ties into what Paul is getting at here. So it's not a demeaning of woman. It's actually a dignifying of God's vision for woman. That there's something to be expressed by a woman's submission to her husband and her submission to the body of elders that shows forth the glory of the humility of Christ in such a precious way that even men can't show it forth in full. It images something that is holy. Some of you ladies may need to repent of some of those things going on in your soul where you find it much more natural to demean your husband when you're on the phone with your friend talking about how irresponsible he is or how he's not spiritual or how he's let you down or how you thought it was going to be this way when you got married and it's not that way at all. And rather than opening your mouth on those things, you should be silent and cover your mouth and gasp and say, Lord, would you grant me the grace, the cleansing of heart and the grace to respect my husband even in those times when he doesn't seem respectable. I don't think it's by accident that Paul charged the men, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her and charged the wives to submit to their husbands and let the wives see to it that they respect their husbands. Well, what's the reason for that? Well, one of them is, husbands, it will not always be easy to love your wife. Wives, it will not always be easy to respect your husband. But if men, you love her when she seems unlovable, then there's something of the wisdom of God that is put on display. And even principalities and powers of darkness lose their breath, so to speak, at the majesty of that. And women, when you submit to and honor and show respect to your husband, even in moments when he has failed, there's something of the wisdom of God put on display there. And the same in the church. When a woman can commune with God with a quiet spirit and grow in the knowledge of the word and be a remarkable vessel of blessing to the church, as Titus 2 mentions, teaching younger women, pouring into other women and children, giving herself to prayer, being devoted to prayer, working with her hands in the home, creating a home that is hospitable and demonstrates something of the glory of God. Now we're getting into this issue of order. You see? It's not just about the order of a service, worship first, a little prophecy here, a little sermon here. It's not just that kind of order. It's about a heavenly kind of order that is subservient to a king who desires things done a certain way, both in the gathering of the saints and in the lives of the saints. Well, there's so much more that I could read. If you want to go and look into that more, come and talk to my wife or some of you sisters, or you can look at these passages. 1 Timothy 2, 
8 to 15. 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, as we've noted, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, Titus 2, 1 through 15, where Paul and Peter are addressing the beauty and dignity of what a, a woman of God is meant to be in the church. And she's not like a dripping, constant dripping, or someone clamoring for attention, insecure. She's secure in the gospel. She's a co-heir of the grace of life. Peter called her. She's not of less value than a man. She's of a different function than a man. Sons and daughters, children we are together in the grace of God. And the way that that expresses itself is simply complementary. Complement one another. Well, I have so much more that I could say about that, but because of time, I'm going to move on. If you have questions about that, feel free to come and Talk to one of the elders or our wives. So he goes on to say in verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has, it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Here you have the authority of the apostle, God-given, and a kind of authority that is never given in our day because he wasn't given only the authority by God to preach the gospel and plant churches and nurture the church, but actually to be a penman of scripture itself. There are no apostles like that today, but there are sent ones of the same character and kind of Paul that the Lord means to shape in the church and send out for the planting and nurturing of churches, the appointing of elders. Let me look for a moment at Jeremiah 31. Here we have the God of order giving declaration to his orderliness, the beauty of his order. He says in chapter 31, this remarkable portion on the new covenant after he speaks of forgiving the nation, the remnant of the nation of Israel at the end of this age, the new covenant being finding its fulfillment in them as a nation, he goes on to describe himself in this way. Thus says the Lord in verse 35, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And then he says, if this fixed order departs, that is the moon, the stars, the ocean, if it departs before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. He's making note of his covenantal commitment to this people. But I love the language of the fixed order. That is to say, God is not arbitrary. He's not ever-changing. He's immutable. He's the same. And he created man and woman for a specific purpose and the churches to function in a specific manner. In fact, I think his heart was burning even brighter when he's laying forth through the apostles how the church ought to function even more than when he flung the stars into place. Because this would be that people fallen through Adam, redeemed through the last Adam, who would set forth his wisdom in a way that stars and moons and mountains and oceans, flowers, fields could never put on display. It's Jesus himself. So we see here a God of order. We could go on for days about that. But moving to the next portion in Colossians 2, we see that the apostle rejoiced at the order that he found the saints at Colossae to be in. The order of their faith he speaks of, the order of their doctrine, their understanding of God, and the order of their lives, the order that has come to them, coming out of a Gentile context which is chaotic and being brought onto the sure ground of the gospel and the shadow of the wing of the God of peace. He rejoices to see their order. What about our lives? Is there a godly order about our lives? Or is there 
a kind of chaos? Is there a kind of taking the scriptures lightly, moving about in our lives, our finances, our time, our commitments, lightly committing to things that we're not going to fulfill and really don't have much of an intention to fulfill? Is there a kind of cheap commitment to our spouses or fiancés, men, where secretly you're looking at porn on your phones, indulging in sins that are militant against the covenant that God would establish with you and your wife? Is there a kind of waywardness of heart? Is there uh, a low view of the church? Thank you. All of these things that we're speaking about, is there a lack of order in the way that we're living and functioning? Paul rejoiced to see the order that was growing in the lives of the saints and that they had come into. So there's a value for this. What about order in the church? We've been talking about it in reference to the gifts of the Spirit. In Titus chapter 1, Paul tells Titus, I left you in Crete that you may put what remained in order. That is, that you may appoint elders in all of the churches there. So there's the order of God, that he's a God of order, precious kind of order, not a deathly order, but a holy, beautiful, majestic order. It shows itself in creation. It shows itself then in his ways through the church. And Paul rejoices to see these ways being expressed in order. Well, I don't really care about doctrine because I just believe in Jesus. We should all kind of be one. Paul cared about the doctrine of the church. Watch closely your lives and your doctrine, he said. Watch them closely. Is there order there? Is there investment? Is there value and treasure there? And then what about in the churches? Do we recognize there's a certain order? Paul did in Titus chapter 1. Something is out of order. When men are not being men, this goes back to the, the womanhood question we've been spending some time on. When men are not being men, something is out of order. When they're not leading, loving, working, something's out of order. When women are not being protected and honored in the church, supported, something's out of order. When children are not obeying and consistently not obeying, something's out of order. When elders are not leading sacrificially, listen, one author says that biblical manhood is the sacrificial, uh, the, the, what is it, the glad assumption, that's it. Biblical manhood is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. When men are shirking responsibility, not willing to sacrifice to provide for their families, not willing to labor to support and build up the church, something's out of order. And women suffer the brunt of that. It makes it more difficult for them to respect the men of the church or their husbands. And it also forces and presses them to lead in certain ways. They are called to lead in certain ways, but it causes them to lead and to speak in ways that are not in keeping with what God has called women to be and to do. Something's out of order there. When parents are not disciplining, when parents are not nurturing, when missionaries are going wherever they want to go at their own whim, without a viable connection to a local church, without being accountable to the church and doing things however they want with regard to ministry, something is out of order. Paul would have taken issue with it. He left Titus in Crete so that he could put what remained in order so that the church would be edified, built up, established. When theologians are taking their own, elevating their own interpretations, even over Paul, something is out of order. It needs to be brought back to the peace of God. There's, much, there's so much more that we could say. I have so many more notes and I only have a few minutes. Lord, I ask that you would help me to share in these few minutes what is most helpful and timely for this people. In Jesus' name. If I was going to build a house and I wanted it to be a classic mission style and I handed it over to the builders and they covered the 120-year-old stone with plastic siding and painted it yellow 
and all of the woodwork inside they took out and put in aluminum rails and all of the furniture, my bookshelves, for goodness sake. <laughs> the wood pillars, the wood trim. They took all of it out and made bare sheetrock walls and the furniture itself. They put in clearance items from Ikea. <laughs> and then they said, the house is done. Come and see what we've done. There would be grief in my heart over that. How much more when we who have been given the call to build one another up as the house of God have not listened to our king who is the head of the house, the Lord of the house. This is something that ought to be serious to us. In verses 36 to 39 of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul addresses elitism and false spirituality. He says, if you think you guys are prophets but you won't pay heed to what I'm saying, you're already discounted. There's a God-given authority through Paul that was given. And lastly in the text, it says, let everything, don't, don't despise prophecy or tongues, but let everything be done decently and in order. Why? That the God of peace may be glorified, that the beauty of his order might be seen, and that the saints may be built up. Here's my closing point. I just discovered this morning the January edition of National Geographic. Maybe some of you have heard of this. It has on the cover a nine-year-old boy by the name of Avery Jackson. I wouldn't even share his name except it's in the National Geographic, so it's public. Nine-year-old boy, Avery Jackson, he's from Kansas City. And on the cover he has long hair dyed pink and he's wearing a dress and he's posing as a female. And it has a quote from him on the front which says, the best thing about being a girl is now I don't have to pretend to be a boy. It says this gender revolution issue will examine the cultural, social, biological, and personal aspects of gender identity. Well, that's a fringe thing. That's a strange thing. No, this is on the front of National Geographic. And this boy, among many others from other states who are covered in the issue, is from our city. At the age of four, he began to be displeased with his body and said, I would rather be a girl. And his parents, who were avid supporters of the LGBT community, said, well, then maybe you are. And the mother for years lived in fear that he would get a hold of a knife and would do something to his private parts. And finally settled on the fact that he's a girl and his older brother sees him as a girl and he identifies as a girl. And this is somehow supposed to be a progressive, more freeing reality that has come to our culture. It's not new. It's simply the sinful nature finding new expressions. It's new to to American media, perhaps. But it's not new to world history, and it's certainly not new in terms of sin. This is the repercussions of the sinful nature finding its expression in creative ways when there has not been a godly order established. It makes me weep to see this little boy who is nine and who's being lifted up as a hero of a movement and who is totally deceived. Godly order in the church is the only bastion of sanity, I wrote this morning. It's the only fortified place left that we would be a people of godly order. It's the only bastion of sanity left, the only bastion of purity and rest in a world that is riddled with chaos, confusion, and vileness. People have wounds from this world, from their own sin, from others. But only in the church can there be found a clarity of truth that defines what men and women are supposed to be, that defines the church as the church, and that reveals who God is as the God of righteousness, peace, and joy. It falls upon us to look at our own lives and to ask, Lord, is there a place where I need to repent? Is there a place where I'm believing wrongly? 
where I'm defining you or defining the church or defining the way that I function based on a mixture of things I perceive and wounds that I have and a reactionary attitude toward this thing or that thing? Am I grounded in your word? Am I filled with your spirit? Am I rightly connected to the body? Am I doing your will, O God? Or am I in some way still doing my own? So I'm going to let Josh give the call for prayer regarding these things, but let me just sum it up in this way. Paul said to Titus, I've left you there to put what remains in order. And as we move toward an expression of partnership, as we formerly called it membership, we have a value for the word itself still, but we're calling it partnership to, to emphasize certain aspects that maybe had grown dim. As we move into doing that following this holiday season, I want you to ask as Bellicose Church and those of you that are visiting, is there a way in which my life, my ministry, the way I'm functioning, the way I'm living, my view of God, the order of my life, or the way I'm functioning in the church actually speaks against the God of peace and the beauty of your order? Is there pride in me that I'm okay to exist for it to go on? Or am I laying my life down for his namesake, for my family, and for the sake of the church and its mission? We want to ask that those of you who come and need to repent of certain things the Lord is highlighting that you would come. We would like to pray for you and trust that the Lord will meet you and establish you in the faith. And those of you who need the the work of the Spirit in your lives in a new way, would you come as well? Josh, is anything to add to that?